We begin the news for October 22nd with this piece from New South Wales about the Premier. Wanted, an honest leader. Above everything else that Australia needs today is an honest, capable, conscientious leader. Someone who will work for the nation, unhampered by party considerations or swayed by personal animosities. We've heard a lot of recrimination of late on both sides, but if words could be weighed, only a fragmentary proportion of those uttered would be found to have appreciable worth. This piece on the need for an honest leader in New South Wales comes from The Independent in Katoomba, New South Wales. For October 22nd, 1930, this was the news. podcast that takes the news from this date many years ago and shares it with you in one news bulletin. I'm Broderick Matthews, bringing you the stories from a time when Australians were demanding honest leaders in politics. Welcome listeners to another episode of This Was The News. Stories for this week coming from the year 1930. It might be 90 years ago, but the stories do seem very relatable today. That piece to start was actually leading into the New South Wales state election, which was being held on the weekend following this paper, and it ended up with a landslide victory at that point for Labor. (laughs) Hmm. Premier Jack Lang had a huge policy of monetary expansion to reinvigorate New South Wales during the Depression, which saw him fly into power. Speaking of flying, the other thing hitting the news was a story of Kingsford Smith. Now, Charles Kingsford Smith was famous for his Trans-Tasman crossing back in 1928. But in 1930, where these stories are coming from, he'd just competed in an England to Australia air race and, flying solo, won the event, taking 13 days. He arrived in Queensland on the 21st of October and this story was reported in the Queensland Times from Ipswich, on the 22nd of October, talking about his weary journey. Kingsford Smith spoke to the people of Australia over 4QG last night, his speech being relayed to Sydney, Melbourne and Adelaide. Smith, speaking into the microphone, said that he was very glad indeed to be back in Australia because it had been a weary journey. He had just come from the wilds of North Australia and was simply burnt to a frazzle, as they said, and felt sore, stiff and tired. He was delighted with the welcome he had received. Kingsford Smith said that as far as he was concerned, long-distance flying was at an end, but he said that with reservations as one never knew what might happen in the future. There was not much to describe about his flight, as when one was busily engaged on his machine, very few permanent impressions were left that one could relate to others. Things went fairly well on the trip, and the average of the weather was more good than bad. By far, the worst patch was from Rangoon to Singapore. Now, folks, if you're wondering where Rangoon is, uh, that's now a city known as Yangon, which is in Myanmar, which was known at this point in time as Burma. So from Rangoon, Burma to Yangon, Myanmar now. Yes, Kingsford Smith left Rangoon two hours before dawn and did not get to Singapore until nearly an hour after dark. Then a ground fog came up and he did not know whether he was going to land on water or terra firma, while his petrol was only sufficient for another hour. He was extremely nervous 
and, to use an Australianism, had the wind up. Fortunately, the fog cleared a little, and he saw the lights of the aerodrome and managed to get down. Smith added that if this effort of his had been of any use in proving that better and faster communication could be made between England and Australia, he felt gratified. Later in the evening, Kingsford Smith spoke over 4 BC, and his speech was again relayed to the southern stations. And the news continued with his landing in Brisbane to a departure and arrival in Sydney, and this was reported in the Daily News from Perth, Western Australia. When Wing Commander Kingsford Smith hopped off from Eagle Farm Aerodrome at 9.25 this morning for Sydney on the last stage of his long flight from London, a couple of hundred people gathered to wave farewell. When all was ready for his departure, Kingsford Smith found that somebody had souvenired his skullcap. Within a minute, he was handed several from which to choose. A few moments later, amidst great cheering, he was off on the way to Sydney. Wing Commander Kingsford Smith landed at Mascot Aerodrome around 2.51 o'clock this afternoon. Extensive arrangements were made to cope with the huge crowd at Mascot. There were 300 police at the aerodrome, and at 2pm there were 25,000 waiting, while along the roads there were streams of cars and pedestrians. The crowd steadily increased, and over 35,000 voices rang out in continuous uproar at Mascot at 2.51pm as Kingsford Smith glided to earth. It was a wonderful reception. One of the first to embrace Kingsford Smith was his sweetheart, who threw herself into her lover's arms and planted a kiss on his sunburnt face. Yes, I'm sure she would have been missing him at that time after getting over to the UK and then 13 days of flying. She would have had her heart in her mouth the whole time. From one Australian 20th century explorer to another, this piece in the Kadena and Wallaroo Times talks of Mawson and some of his tips for a potential diet. The possibilities of whale flesh becoming a regular item of human diet are discussed by Sir Douglas Mawson in a contribution to the House magazine of the Shell Company of South Africa. According to Sir Douglas, whale flesh has a greater vitamin content than most of our meats. The taste is easily acquired, and 50 years hence, when the world's population is very much greater than it is now, whale flesh may be one of the greatest food resources of the world. Great quantities of it are eaten in Norway, and we should look on the seas as grazing areas for the mammals, producing our future potential meat supply. Sounds like an interesting idea. Potentially, Mawson would have eaten a bit of whale flesh on his Antarctic journeys. The article goes on to say, Whales live on the microscopic animal life of oceanic plankton, which in turn lives on microscopic vegetable plankton, and localities rich in this plankton exist only in certain areas of the oceans. Chemical observations made by the discovery of the seawaters indicate regions likely to be specially rich in plankton life and will aid in mapping the grazing grounds of the Antarctic whales. In time to come, when the seas are properly mapped out, whalers will not thresh the sea looking for whales, they will go straight to the known whaling grounds. And in a way, that prediction is potentially true, with the Japanese whale hunting vessels now going straight to the whaling ground. But for the most part, especially across Australia, 
We aren't hunting the whales to kill them, but instead to watch them and enjoy the fantastic sights of a whale breaching and splashing in the waters off our coast. Let's take a short break now. Look alive, feel alive. Inspirited health, ready for anything. Fit for work, keen for pleasure. Take Sal Vital. It's wonderful. A spoonful or two in water makes a bubbling drink. Take it every morning to make your day start with a swing and to keep you going. Bickford's Sal Vital. The premier health salts are refreshment and generous medicine in one-pound tins everywhere. The happy task of motherhood is lightened by Benga's food. Nursing and expectant mothers will find a mine of valuable information in the new booklet, a medically approved work, sent post-free. For delicate infants and at weaning time, try Benga's Food. Benga's Food Limited, 390 George Street, Sydney. Welcome back to This Was The News, reporting from October 22, way back in 1930. We heard some interesting news pieces to kick us off about the New South Wales election and Charles Kingsford-Smith landing back in Australia. But this piece from the Daily News in Perth is a bit of a discussion around our national anthem. Because at this point in time, while Advance Australia Fair existed and had been played at our Federation in 1901, we didn't have an Australian national anthem. We only had God Save the King. So this piece in the Daily News from Perth talks about our national anthem. There is no wonder the officials of Australia House were not able to answer the query, what is the Australian national anthem? Reply might have been made, as one prominent state officer did this morning, when faced with the question, saying, there isn't one. It seemed very much like it when vague replies were given by over a score of citizens of Perth who would be thought of as authorities. After a questioning of an hour, the verdict seemed to crystallise round a song, beginning with, there's a land of summer skies. Some knew the second line. Not one of those asked knew the author or the correct title. Other anthems were mentioned, Land of Hope and Glory, which is not Australian, and an ode which gained a prize for Stevens, which would be almost impossible to set to music for community singing. Many others were suggested as suitable claimants for the honour, but a couple of hours' test showed that no anthem had been unanimously endorsed or was known as the Australian National Anthem. The general idea of those questioned centred on the song used in the schools, of which a number knew the first or first two lines, but not one could give the author. Following this, various anthologies of Australian verse were consulted. None had the lines quoted. Four bookstores and a wholesale warehouse could not supply the Australian National Anthem. Finally, it was suggested music shops could be requisitioned, as it was known the overseas quoted have been set to music. The second music store visited confessed to having a copy, not as the Australian National Anthem, but as the Song of Australia. The questioner was informed it was contained in a popular issue of a book of songs, and there were some really good songs in the number. 
so it appeared the Australian national anthem had to be supported by other lyrics set to music to enable its publication. It may be interesting to learn that the supporting songs to the Australian national anthem, or the one most favoured to date, included Old Lang Syne, Old Black Joe, La Marseille, We Doch and Doris, Polly Wally Doodle and Bingo. Also, there's the tavern in the town. The anthem The Song of Australia was written by Mrs C.J. Carterton and the musical setting generally taken is by C. Linger. It is used throughout the schools and has been adopted by many Australian organisations. And then the paper prints The Song of Australia, of which I'll read you a few verses now. There is a land where summer skies are gleaming with a thousand dyes, blinding in witching harmonies, in harmonies. And grassy knoll and forest height are flushing in the rosy light, and all above is azure bright, Australia, Australia, Australia. There is a land where treasures shine, deep in the dark and unfathomed mine, for worshippers at Mammon's Shrine, at Mammon's Shrine. Where gold lies hid and rubies gleam, the fabled wealth no more doth seem, the idle fancy of a dream, Australia, Australia, Australia. There is a land where honey flows, where laughing corn luxuriant grows, land of the myrtle and the rose, land of the rose. On hill and plain the clustering vine is gushing out with purple wine, and cups are quaffed to three and thine, Australia, Australia, Australia. There is a land where floating free, from mountain top to girdling sea, a proud flag waves exultingly, exultingly. And freedom's sons the banners bear, no shackled slave can breathe the air, Fairest of Britain's daughters fair, Australia, Australia, Australia. I think that sounds like a pretty good anthem. It might not mention those who lived in Australia before Europeans came, and I feel like that's something we probably need in our anthem. But it does mention our wonderful wine that we like to quaff. And of course, as any good anthem should have, it still quotes that Australia is good by sea. And before we go to another break, a short piece from the Queensland Times in Ipswich with some advice for parents. Care should be exercised by the parents of lads who are allowed to use fireworks in the city streets that they do not annoy citizens or endanger property. Recently, some youths, who do not appear to understand their duty to respect the rights of others, annoyed teachers and students of the technical college by throwing crackers into the classrooms besides otherwise disturbing the students by the noise outside. The police have been asked to prevent a repetition of the offence. There are laws to prevent the letting off of crackers in the heart of the city, but with a few exceptions, rules of good conduct are the strongest deterrent of this practice. It is hoped the few offenders will adopt these rules. You hear that, lads? No fireworks, just good conduct. Let's take a break. South Townsville Talkies, the little theatre with the big talkies. Tonight and two more nights, the talking screen's most stupendous production. Cecil B. DeMille's first talkie and greatest triumph, 
dynamite. This picture has everything. Daring, lavish, startling, spectacular. Featuring Conrad Nagel, Kay Johnson, Charles Bickford, Julia Fay, and a stupendous cast. An all-talking Metro Golden Mire picture. In addition, an all-talking riot of laughs, Whispering Whoopi, featuring Charles Chase. Also, latest edition Fox Movie Tone News. West End and Hermit Park buses wait for patrons at Victoria Bridge tonight. Reservations at Big Foley's after 5.30pm at Theatre. Phone 433. The best by every test. VB Ale, the Carlton product. Every bottle bears the guarantee. Absolutely pure, no preservatives. Try VB Ale. Coming towards the end of the news for October 22nd, back 90 years ago in 1930, we move into sports. And this piece on a betting raid comes from the Scrutineer and Berrimah District Press in New South Wales. 220 men arrested on hotel roof. One of the most sensational, carefully planned raids for many years took place at Randwick on Saturday afternoon when 220 youths and men who were entrapped on the roof of the hotel were arrested by a special raiding squad of police organised by Inspector Russell and Sergeant Jennings and Pickford. About five o'clock in the afternoon, Constables Chuck, Gregory and Watson, dressed as workmen, mingled with the great crowd of men on the flat roof of the Doncaster Hotel at the corner of Anzac Parade and Doncaster Avenue, less than a quarter of a mile from the racecourse. The police alleged that they saw seven bookmakers illicitly betting with the men assembled on the roof. The betting transactions were proceeding as if the gathering was actually on the racecourse, the odds on the various horses being made known by tic-tac signals on the course. Many of these on the roof were excitedly watching the racing events, some of them using binoculars. At a given signal, Inspector Russell and the other police went up to the roof in a lift. There are only two means of exit, the lift and the staircase. Both of these were strongly guarded. The men were told that they were all under arrest. There was no effort to escape on the part of anyone, though some examined the walls of the building anxiously. But it is a four-storey building, and consequently the distance to the ground was too great for anyone to jump with safety. The arrested men were taken in police wagons in relays to the central police station, where they were charged. The licensee of the hotel, Mr Richard Wooten, stood bail to the amount of more than £1,000 for those who were charged with having been on the premises for the purpose of betting. That's not a bad deal, at least the barman gets you out of trouble there. But speaking of races, there was a big horse with a big heart that was making big headlines. Over in Melbourne, the Herald was reporting on Farlap's price for the Melbourne Cup. There was considerable speculation regarding the weight that would be allotted to Farlap in the Melbourne Cup. Now, just as keen an interest is being displayed in the price of which will start in that race, if all goes well with him until the day. Yes, Farlap had competed in the Melbourne Cup the year before, 1929, but only finished third. But he was certainly odds-on favourite to compete here in 1930. The article continues by saying, Farlap's influence on the discussions seems sure to have the effect of his starting the hottest favourite on record. 
it will be surprising if his price is any better than that on offer when the barrier rose a year ago. Opposition to Farlap will be fairly strong, but it has been lessened by the withdrawal of approved stayer in Glare, whose defection adds to the usual crop of troubles that beset backers every year on the two cups double. Telford is beginning to give Farlap plenty of work, and he appears to be thriving on it. Farlap galloped well on Saturday and was worked yesterday and again today. Telford allowed Farlap to have a few easy days after his return from racing on the hard tracks in Sydney, and it is quite apparent that this course has benefited him. Farlap is entered for the Valley and the Melbourne Stakes a week later. Success in either or both of these events would indicate that he is physically fit, which would add further to his cup popularity. And indeed, he was popular uh, starting the race at odds of 8 to 11, which is just a £1.73 return for each £1 bet. But news will tell us further on, and not from today, that he did end up doing quite well that year. And amazingly, Farlap won on all four days of the Flemington Spring Carnival, uh, winning the Melbourne Cup uh, amongst everything else. Between the autumn of 1930 and April 1932, Farlap won 32 of his 35 races. Quite an amazing achievement for this amazing horse. And to finish off the news today, a piece on sport and entertainment from the Daily News Perth talking about the latest pastime. Miniature golf. This fascinating pastime is becoming more popular with the Perth public. Day and night, large attendances assemble at the links of the Miniature Golf Company in Hay Street to try out their skill in circumventing the ingenious layouts and hazards of the course. Yes, miniature golf was a newish thing back in 1930, sort of developed in the early 20th century, but was only just coming out to Australia. The article continues to explain, This game is played by all sorts of people, young and old, who have never played real golf in their lives. No knowledge of golf is necessary to become adept at miniature golf, and one can have all the excitement and thrill of the game without the long walks and exasperation of losing the ball. And with that fun piece, we putt-putt towards the end of this week's news, ending today's bulletin. For October 22nd, 1930, this was the news. This Was The News is a podcast spoken and edited by Broderick Matthews. All source material is taken from the reference newspapers and found online through the National Library of Australia's Trove website. Links to each of the articles mentioned today can be found in the show notes. The theme music is from Beethoven's Symphony No. 6 and sourced under public domain from newsopen.org. If you enjoyed today's show, make sure to subscribe and review it on iTunes, Spotify or your favourite podcasting app. This Was The News can be followed on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram and any email correspondence should be sent to thiswasthenews at gmail.com. Thank you for listening to today's episode. The next episode will be out in a fortnight, released on Thursday, November 5. I'm Broderick Matthews, and this was The News.